Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. In the spirit of the supernatural thriller season that it is, tra-la-la-la-la, I asked members of the Let the Right One In company about their beginnings in theatre, what scares them, and if there was a winter's night story, scene or song they'd like to share around the hearth of the Abbey Theatre fireplace. And there was. What follows is a series of mini-podcast bites that won't ruin your appetite. Enjoy these podcasts. So my name is Bob Kelly and I play Hamburg, the cop, and Avila, the teacher in Let the Right One In. The last few years I've been working on Once the Musical on and off, so I had met John Tiffany before in that context and Stephen Hoggett. I was familiar with the, the type of work they do, the type of stories they tell and their, their modus operandi. So when the opportunity came up to audition for this, um, I jumped at it because they're, they're great people to work with. And it's been a real privilege working on one of their shows, just to work on two has been just extraordinary, you know. So to come in here, um, into the Abbey in particular, who I last worked with back in 2012, and to come in with such a, a, a dynamic and interesting group of actors who I didn't know to work on a show of this quality has been a really, really great experience. Well, I trained at the Lecoq School in Paris. I did two years over there from 2008-2010. It's a very physically engaged school. They work from the outside in, so there's no sort of work on characters' psychology or... Um, often even motivation. It's 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 you, you you begin with the physical and you work inwards from there. the The end result is in theory the same, um, but there's much less of a danger of getting uh, lost in in navel gazing. And it's a very practical course. Well, I would have joined Sligo Youth Theatre around about the age of eighteen, nineteen, and um, I think at that point. Um, I hadn't fully decided on it as a career, although I think it, it was definitely on the cards, you know. Um, and Sligo Youth Theatre is sort of unique in that they're, they're under the wing of Blue Raincoat Theatre Company up there, who are um, a fairly unique theatre company, you know. And although the Blue Raincoats wouldn't have been very hands-on with the youth theatre stage that I joined it, we would have met them, we would have seen their work, there would have been little interaction between their company and, and the youth theatre. And Niall Henry, who runs Blue Raincoat, would have said to me, I seem to remember him saying to me when I was quite young then, that, that Lecoq was the place for me to go. Um, he said that he didn't like it, but I would. <laughs> and it sort of stuck in my mind. And I remember a few years later when I was um, I was running workshops of, for the younger kids for the youth theatre. I remember going down to a workshop in Galway, which Miguel Barcelo was running, and just watching how he ran the workshop and watching the way he moved and thinking, OK, I'm going to go where he went, wherever that was. And, of course, it turned out it was Lecoq. So at a certain point, I started to feel like this place was um, was on the cards, you know, was kind of chasing me a little bit. Well, I, I first studied, I did a, um, a degree in Applied Social Care and Sozialarbeit from IT Sligo and the FA Ioannium in Graz, which is in Austria. And I sort of got into that by accident. I, I had been scouting around for places in drama schools and it sort of felt like they kept getting cancelled as I applied for them. I think there was a year when DIT didn't happen and Trinity didn't happen and I sort of was left at a, at a loose end. Um, although obviously I wasn't trying that hard because I would have found something to do, you know. But I was offered this place on social care in Sligo, which I felt at the time was some sort of a mix up with the CAO forms. But I thought, I'm bumming about for a year. This seems like a very useful, interesting thing to do. So I, I got involved. And once you start down that road, it's kind of hard to throw it to the wind to go and fart around as an actor. I mean, you're studying psychology, gender studies, um, psychotherapy, equality studies. Um, basically, it's this big smorgasbord of how to be a better human. And um, I found that it was it was just really, really interesting. It was offering me opportunities that uh, to, to do things and meet people that you wouldn't get otherwise. To meet with disadvantaged people in the north inner city here, not far from the Abbey. I did a little stint around the corner from here. 
Um, so it was just it was just fascinating, you know, particularly the psychology aspects of it. And I felt I still had had my eye on the theatre career, but I felt that all of this was could only help to make me a, 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 a more human, more engaged with 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 art and why we make it. So it was never my intention to go into that as a career, but I just found um, that it was doing me the world good. And I, I had a lot of friends who had gone off to study theatre or acting at a young age, 18, 19. They were coming out 21, 22 uh, and trying to make careers for themselves. And some were doing well and some weren't. But I, I, I always wondered, you know, really, are we asking these young people to get up and, and reflect us and they haven't got any life experience of themselves? I didn't feel myself that that I had the right to speak, if you like. I didn't feel that I had much to say. Um, so I, I, I kind of took a detour there to sort of have a look around. Do you feel that there's any echoes of that experience, uh, that chapter in your life, replicated on stage? Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, I think um, it actually came up in the audition. We were discussing the relationship between Mr. Avila, the teacher that I play, and and Oscar, and how Avila is, you know, well-meaning, but not of much use. And uh, I said that, yeah, given my experiences as a youth worker, I, I certainly know how it felt to be ineffectual. You know, <laughs> you do your best. At the end of the day, you know, youth workers do an awful difficult job and to help a young person through um, even the ordinary stuff that every young person faces is is an immensely difficult task, you know, let alone when a young person finds themselves in, in a particular scenario, whether it's bullying or abuse at home or domestic violence or whatever it might be. It's a real minefield and it's very, very difficult to know what the right thing to do is any, at any given time is. So, yeah, I think definitely the, the experiences that I had with the young people that I came into contact with, as well as my own, um, it definitely gave me a, a different insight into into what we're doing on the stage down there and how I'd interpret the, the dilemma that the character has, you know. I mean, it, it doesn't all parallel. At the end of the day, we don't want to see reality reflected up there. You know, we, we like to put morality on the stage rather than ethics, you know. So we got our bad guys and our good guys, and it's all very clear who, who we're cheering for. In real life, it's a little more difficult. One of the things I like about this piece is the way that, uh, you know, John Linkvist does acknowledge that, that pain comes from pain. And I think that, to a certain degree, the author probably has a similar take that I do on that, which is it's all very well and good to be compassionate with everybody and understand everybody's reasons, but reasons aren't the same thing as excuses. And at some point, the vampire has to come in and beat the hell out of them all, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, <laughs> you know. What would you do to get rid of a vampire in your house? <laughs> <laughs> a real vampire? That is a very good question. So what would I do to get rid of a vampire in my house? Well... Don't let them in in the first place. At the risk of sounding daft, I mean, I, I do have a lot of time for people who've had what they might describe as supernatural supernatural experiences, okay? I haven't, in myself, seen or literally experienced anything. But an awful lot of people very close to me have told me about that, their experiences, and it's very difficult to discount that amount of, of, of experience when it comes from people that you know and trust from various sources. But one thing I've noticed um, when people tell you about their experiences with um, ghosts or whatever it might be they say they've experienced is that the key to unravelling these things always seems to be to ask them what they want. You know, I think the idea of a vampire is daft. That's us projecting our own insecurities and fears onto the, the outside world, obviously. But anything that comes from the realm of the unexplained, whether you want to take it as literally true or whether it's just through folklore, the key always seems to be to ask them what it wants. Which, interestingly, I think is also the way to defuse a bully, you know, somebody who comes at you with that type of aggression. Um, 
is to ask them what they want, you know, to, to try and that's not just a way of diffusing what's going on, but also in the long term to help that person and to try and establish an, a new relationship that isn't abusive is to try and figure out what is this, this person is actually trying to achieve and, and see if you can get there. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, people act out in this fashion because they're trying to achieve something, even if it's just momentarily to feel the, the thrill of power over another person. And if you can get them to become aware that that's what they're doing and you're aware and now everybody knows what it is you're looking for, maybe we can try to figure out why you feel that way and, and get to the root of the thing, you know. The one thing I remember scaring me as a child, um, the one specific thing is uh, the, the, the Mercury recording of... H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, which my brothers got a hold of when we were kids. There's three three brothers in my family, and we're all quite close in age, one, two, three years, and I'm in the middle. And for some reason, my younger brother, so I've got no excuse, my younger brother and my older brother loved to listen to this thing at night when we were going to bed. Um, and there was a particular point in it that just burned its way into my memory and scared the living hell out of me. And I probably was too afraid to say it then, given that my younger brother was into it and I didn't want to be the scaredy cat. But um, the moment where the... He's trapped under the rubble and the alien is, is looking in through the window trying to find him. And I think he reaches in and grabs somebody else instead, grabs the unconscious body of Phil Linnett, the pastor. <laughs> Phil Linnett did the, did the voice of it in the, in the musical version. And looking back on it now, now that I know the various versions of that and I've read the book several times and all the rest, the mind boggles as to why I was scared of it, you know. But um, I see in my own older son how the mind will pick something to latch onto and to project into. Um, and it doesn't rationally have to be the scariest image in the world, but, but that's where the fear goes. That's where it goes, you know. My big experience of fear in recent years has, has been um, the birth of my first child. Not so much the second one, because I think I'm into the swing of it now, but the sudden arrival into the world um, of this creature that you are completely responsible for, um, yet at the same time he has the autonomy to run out in front of cars if he chooses, is a terribly frightening thing. Um, but I find it very interesting to chart... Um, because I wouldn't always be very aware of what's going on with myself internally. I try to be, but I'm just not particularly in tune with my unconscious as much as I'd like to be. So sometimes you have dreams or things, then you're like, what's going on, you know? And it'd be very obvious to somebody else, but my dreams have to start screaming at me before I know. And I know that a little while after Alex was born, I started having dreams which, in their first form, had me leaping out of the bed screaming because Alex had been sucked up into the sky by a malevolent force. And then over time, they became dreams of him being taken by somebody and I again would be out of the bed screaming and shouting uh, but they mellowed as I got more used to this new responsibility until I, th I remember my last sort of terror dream about Alex was there was a big party in the flat and somebody was playing loud music and nasty people were hanging around and I went out and I said hey I'm a dad now and you better turn this music down because my boy's asleep so I was starting to you know be able to cope with it um, and I, I, I was certainly still afraid that something would take him or damage him in some way but I was starting to trust my own capacity uh, to at least manage as much as I was responsible for or, or as much as I could control and maybe to to just live with the, the, the crippling fear of the stuff you can't control, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's, it's, it's just this terrible fear that you have to live with that something might happen to your kids and then you would be left in this awful void of a world without them. And my, I, I noticed as well, I, I became incredibly sensitive to anything in the newspapers involving kids stories that previously would make you go oh that's awful that's awful now I'd, i would have to put the newspaper down and walk away and, and be on my own for a while i would be so upset at the thought of someone doing xyz to a child you know because it's like this little switch has been flipped inside you and you are, you now have a different function in life if you had one before i don't know if i did personally um because i'm, I'm certainly somebody who always wanted to be a father and was always 
probably wasn't always ready for it, but certainly was was looking forward to it. So to feel that you're you you got this function now, this is what you're for, and you reject vehemently any part of the world that that goes against that. People who would try to damage children or um, or a child being hurt in any way just goes against your being. You know, you you feel a, a fundamental rejection of it. But over time learned to mellow and I'm hoping to channel that type of energy to something a little bit more constructive than leaping out of bed screaming and shouting because that didn't get anything done I found during um, rehearsals for this I found I was thinking a lot about a Tolkien essay a J.R.R. Tolkien essay that I had read years ago called On Fairy Stories and when he says on fairy stories he doesn't necessarily mean stories about fairies but more about the interaction between the realm of the supernatural and, and the human world and how we how we talk about it in art you know um, in particular, the, one of the reasons that essay always struck me is because I'm, I'm a, a theatre-minded person. Theatre is my métier, that's what I do. And Tolkien stated fairly clearly in that essay that he didn't think stage was the place for fantasy. Now, he was speaking of his time when drama would have been of a much more literary in nature. But um, his arguments always struck me as very good ones. And certainly when I did my first stage adaptation for theatre a few years ago, which was Drayden and Love, um, a short story by Jeff Vandermeer, who's one of the, the big world fantasy award winning authors. He, um, he's one of the big guys in what they call the New Weird Movement. I adapted one of his stories for the stage and there's plenty of fantasy in that. And we sort of face a lot of challenges in, in how you represent a fantasy world on stage. Um, and Tolkien came to mind a lot then. So when we came to mind here, or when we were rehearsing here, um, he came to mind a lot because I, I, I found myself thinking that, that, that John Tiffany... Um, not only seemed to be very, very aware of the challenges that Tolkien had raised, um, but had found very interesting ways around them. It was a, this. This show was a very interesting rebuttal to Tolkien's assertions. I think you know, um, where there are there are moments where the fantastical elements have to be foregrounded because it is, after all, a vampire story. But there's an awful lot they've done in terms of the the structure of the piece and how they presented it to 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 support that and to 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 work around. The, the challenges Tolkien identified, you know. So I'm going to read here um, just a little excerpt from that essay, which is um, what Tolkien had to say about drama and fantasy. Drama is naturally hostile to fantasy. Fantasy, even of the simplest kind, hardly ever succeeds in drama when that is presented as it should be, visibly and audibly acted. Fantastic forms are not to be counterfeited, Men dressed up as talking animals may achieve buffoonery or mimicry, but they do not achieve fantasy. This is, I think, well illustrated by the failure of the bastard form pantomime. The nearer it is to dramatised fairy story, the worse it is. It's only tolerable when the plot and its fantasy are reduced to a mere vestigiary framework for farce, and no belief of any kind in any part of the performance is required or expected of anybody. This is, of course, partly due to the fact that the producers of drama have to, or try to, work with mechanism to represent either fantasy or magic. I once saw a so-called children's pantomime, the straight story of Puss in Boots, with even the metamorphosis of the ogre into a mouse. Had this been mechanically successful, it would either have terrified the spectators or else have been just a turn of high-class conjuring. As it was, though done with some ingenuity of lighting, disbelief had not so much to be suspended as hung, drawn and quartered. In Macbeth, when it is read, I find the witches tolerable. They have a narrative function and some hint of dark significance, though they are vulgarised poor things of their kind. They are almost intolerable in the play. 
I'm told that I would feel differently if I had the mind of the period with its witch hunts and witch trials, but that is to say if I regarded the witches as possible, indeed likely, in the primary world, in other words, if they were not fantasy. To be dissolved or to be degraded is the likely fate of fantasy when a dramatist tries to use it, even such a dramatist as Shakespeare. Macbeth is indeed a work by a playwright who ought, at least on this occasion, to have written a story if he had the skill or patience for that art. So a bit of a, a, a diss from Tolkien for Shakespeare there. I do find it interesting to see how in this piece they've worked around that by making it a human story first and foremost. You know, the story, the monsters in this story, as, as John Tiffany says, aren't the vampires. They are the, the other human beings, the bullies. The story is really a, a coming-of-age story about how Oscar manages to come up with a strategy to d defeat the forces that are ranged against him. Now, that strategy happens to evolve a supernatural force that he comes across. But you could just as easily argue that, that Eli's character represents Oscar's unconscious strength, his aspects of his personality that he hasn't tapped into yet because he's just approaching puberty, and that it's a story of him becoming a full man and, and, and using his strength to assert himself. And all the psychoanalysts in the audience, I think, would be very happy with that. Yeah, the most inhuman character there offers the most humanity. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.